I mean, what's not to worry about as a small business in the middle of a global pandemic? But I would say as a small business, the reason why we've survived up until now is because of how quickly we've been to adapt, to try out new ideas, to fail, not being afraid of failing. One of the things that keeps me up at night is what if one of those failures is too big of a failure and we can't really recover? Like it takes us 10 steps back and now we're sitting at a place where it looks like we have to shut down because of this one move. But you don't want that very thought to stop you from wanting to keep failing and testing out new ideas because that at the end of the day is what's kept us alive until now. That's Kay Kim, the founder of Rooted, a plant startup in New York City. As we'll hear in just a bit, the pandemic forced Kay and his co-founder, Ryan, to abandon their physical shop in Chinatown and double down on e-commerce. But here's the good news. So far, sales are soaring. Later on, we're with Kay to hear why he ditched brick and mortar and what he's learned so far. I'm Daniel Giacopelli, editorial director of Courier, a media company all about stories of working better and living smarter. Today on the show, we're starting with a topic that probably all of us are grappling with right now, time management. Four out of five adults report feeling that they're time poor. They have too much to do and not enough time to do it. And that was before the pandemic. Time poverty leads to less joy, less productivity, and worse health. Well, in October, a new book is coming out from Harvard Business Review Press called Time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time and Live a Happier Life. The author is Ashley Willens, an assistant professor at Harvard Business School whose research focuses on time and happiness. I caught up with her just a bit earlier to find out some techniques and strategies for reclaiming time and improving our time affluence. Here's Ashley. Yeah, so time poor is the definition in the academic literature is this idea of feeling like you have too many things to do and not enough time in the day to do them. So it's not necessarily about the objective amount of time you have, but instead this subjective feeling of being overwhelmed and pulled in many different directions. And I think as I outline, and really what's the impetus for the book and a lot of my research is that an increasing amount of people are feeling time poor. It's interesting to think about this topic in the context of COVID. And we can get back to that because I've been doing a bunch of research on it and writing or like starting to think about writing my second book. And like, I think people's meanings and construal of time has changed a lot. But in general, (laughs) pre-COVID, our large scale survey data suggests that people are feeling increasingly time poor. So there's a stat that I write in the first chapter, which is like 80% of working Americans in large representative panels, one including a data set we analyzed with almost 3 million Americans, show that 80% feel time poor, like they have too many things to do and not enough time in the day to do them. And these feelings of time poverty have greater negative effects and subjective well-being, happiness, life satisfaction, than being unemployed in our data, like a similar magnitude effect on the happiness. And so it's just like really striking to show that like so many people feel overwhelmed by everything that they have to do. And this translates into a lot of misery and stress for people. And that's not just an American phenomenon. You know, there's been some great economics research showing that 
people feel increasingly time poor in societies as different as Japan to Germany to Australia. It afflicts both like the very wealthy and the very poor the most. So I'm doing a lot of research on time poverty among the working poor. And it doesn't seem intuitive, but actually people are struggling to make ends meet, have to work multiple jobs commute very far distances to their places of employment or constantly job searching while also having less access to market support like outsourcing and things that people with middle and higher incomes are able to take advantage of more. And then people at the very high incomes, uh, their time becomes more valuable because their time starts to become worth more money. So anything that's valuable is seen as scarce. And so as we start to make more money, we start to feel more pressed for time because every minute that we waste feels worse to us since it's worth so much money. On average, you see that time stress undermines happiness across the income distribution, but that there's lower income and higher income or even more affected than this kind of like middle income earners. Do you think lockdown has made us more or less time poor? Because, you know, you can make the argument that when you're at home, you're not at the office and experiencing all the many distractions and meetings and brainstorming sessions and water cooler talk and all that stuff. You know, so if you're at home, you have less of that and you have more time, or you can make the argument that when you're at home, you have to deal with your pets and kids and the doorbell ringing constantly. So what does the research say? I think it's actually a really complicated question. So my collaborators and I recently wrote an article that should be in press and HBR in like a few weeks. And we were like, well, you know, we saved all this time commuting. Shouldn't we all be time rich now? And it's the answer to the question is not quite so simple. People are finding it very difficult to separate work and life. People are working a lot longer hours to compensate for not having social interactions. And people are doing a lot more caregiving that they weren't doing before. And so actually, there could potentially be the silver lining of time affluence right now. It's not being fully realized for all groups of people and across all professions. And so the question becomes like, how can we support time affluence during this time? Because what we're seeing in our data is not surprising and maps on other things other people are saying. We collected like 15 data sets from workers all over the world and asked them about how they were spending their time, how happy they felt, how stressed they felt. And you see huge gender differences, huge differences via parenting. So women have way less leisure right now than they did before. They're doing way more necessities, way more cooking, way more childcare than they did before. They're reporting less productivity at their work because of more distractions. And this is true like for parents across the board, but especially women who tend to take on more of those domestic responsibilities at home. So there is the opportunity. Some people are saying like, hey, I have more time to do hobbies and to engage in uh, leisure and it's been great and I've never been so fit and I've never been able to cook so well, but those gains are not being fully realized by everyone that we're studying. What do you think about the idea of idleness? Is not having enough to do associated with unhappiness or happiness? Is too much time bad and not enough time equally bad? So this feeling of time affluence predicts happiness. And then if you have too much time and you feel like not enough to do, that predicts unhappiness. That's part of the reason why people who are unemployed are miserable too, is that one, they just have less to do, so they're more idle, and idleness is associated with unhappiness. But they also have less coordinated social schedules. So with unemployment pre-COVID, one reason that unemployment and employment predicts happiness and unemployment predicts unhappiness is not only do you have too much time on your hands, you don't have enough meaningful activity to fill your days, but you're also not 
living a schedule that's consistent with other people's. Work is a coordination function. Weekdays are quite busy and it's hard to meet up with people. And then the weekends are quite free. And that kind of keeps us all in a similar cadence. And for people who are unemployed, that cadence doesn't exist. But in general, you're absolutely right. Too much time is bad. Not enough time is bad. There's sort of a sweet spot where you want to not be overwhelmed, but you want to have like enough meaningful activities to fill your day. What can people actually do to reclaim their time? What are some of the strategies you talk about in the book? Yeah, so we talk in the book about finding time, funding time, and reframing time. Funding time is just as exactly as it sounds. Like, are there ways that you can give up money to have more free time? Could be things like outsourcing, house cleaning, or childcare to others, which is a little harder to do right now. So we're advocating for the use of autonomous products, which also significantly increase well-being. So we've done all these fun studies looking at people who have Roombas and blenders and other kinds of appliances that save time. And to the extent that you think of those as time-saving devices, and then think about how you're going to spend that free time, those are also associated with greater happiness and less stress, similarly to like outsourcing and house cleaning and stuff. So maybe autonomous products are the way we should be thinking about that category right now. But it's also about broadly sacrificing earned income to have more free time. So you could work fewer hours, take more paid and unpaid vacation, and that could be a sacrifice of money to have more free time. So that also fits within this bucket of funding time. And then in the finding time, this is about kind of thinking about pockets of time that kind of go wasted in your day and then substituting that with better, more time affluent activities. So in the book, I talk about, you know, the fact that we actually waste a lot of time mindlessly on our phones and kind of engage in activities that aren't necessarily as positive as they could be. So in the labor economics literature, we want to think about like maximizing our U index. So spending as much time as we can engage in activities that bring us happiness and the least amount of time in activities that bring us misery. And then my book editor and I just sort of like, well, you could also think of this as like the Marie Kondo method of time use, right? So do I like this activity? If not, like get rid of it or try to make it better. And so this like finding time is like, well, if you don't really like doing the housework, but you can't outsource, is there ways of imbuing that negative time with positive activities? Like also listening to a podcast or also talking on the phone with a friend. If you tend to fill up those random pockets of time that you get between meetings with like random email checking, could you create a list of things that you could substitute that free time for instead, like spending five minutes meditating or reaching out to a friend or doing 50 jumping jacks? And it seems simple. And obviously we all know this, it's like intuitive, but unless you plan and actually write down and have implementation intentions for these small windows of time that often go missing or that are bad time, but your habit isn't to try to make that time better, then we often don't do it. That's the whole point of the book is like, my strategies are obvious, but like I'm a time researcher. I spent like my whole dissertation doing this and I couldn't put it into practice and in my own life. So the book is really focused on like some of the science behind what I'm saying and then also like practical implementation strategies for getting there. And then the third classification is reframing time. So sometimes you're stuck in activities you don't like at work, mostly, but also outside of work, like commuting when we all go back to the office. Sometimes you can't imbue that with better time. Like it's very hard to be both like working on administrative tasks at work and also be like listening to a podcast. Like I'll get my finances wrong 
for my grants if I'm also trying to like do some other cool, better thing, right? It's not always possible to like imbue bad moments of time with more positive activities. So in this case, there's a lot of good science behind the idea of reframing these activities. So Leah Crum at Stanford has a lot of research showing that if you reframe negative activities at work, like the physical activity of your job, and you think about it not as like a chore, but actually as a way to meet your required physical health goals, that you feel way better about it, and your health actually improves, your BMI decreases, and your blood pressure decreases. We also have some research showing that a lot of our jobs have a lot of drudgery, paperwork and administration tasks, email, process stuff that's really like annoying. But just thinking about how those tasks enable other people to get their job done or connect to a broader goal of being a good communicator at work or getting a research project done, that can actually help people feel much better about those tasks in the moment that they're doing them. And so that third category is really like, well, if you can't buy yourself out of the activity, you can't imbue it with more positive moments. Can you just change the way you're thinking about it to take some of the edge off and to make you feel less stressed? And all of these strategies serve to reduce time stress because as I mentioned before, time stress is like goal conflict in some ways. You're doing one thing, but you feel like you wish you would be doing something else or the drudge work in your office is making you feel like you can't get any of your meaningful, purposeful activities done. So a lot of like reducing time stress is about kind of like minimizing that feeling of goal conflict. So that's why that third strategy is effective because it allows you to kind of just see the task for what it is, to appreciate the task more, and to make it feel like it's less coming into conflict with other goals that you have in your life. Do people often confuse happiness with productivity? I mean, what is the end goal here? Is it to be happy or to be more productive? Yeah, I mean, I think people do confuse it. And I do address this in the book. I'm focused on time use with the outcome, the long-term goal of, of being happier and healthier because that will make you like more productive, right? It's like you can kind of think about these things in whichever way suits you best, right? Because there's really good evidence coming out of Jan Deneb's lab. I think he's at Oxford and Cambridge, uh, some fancy professor that I work with who's great, studies happiness, and a lot of work coming out of his lab suggests happier employees are more productive. I'm not focused so much on that. I come down on this in the book a little bit. I'm like, well, if you think you can just outsource and then spend that time working and still be as happy, like you're wrong. Even people who like their jobs, who work more hours in an average week than they usually do report low levels of happiness and higher levels of stress when they're working more than usual or when they're working past a certain threshold. And there's accumulating evidence suggesting that the most productive, happiest people work actually fewer hours as opposed to more, even if you're intrinsically motivated. Because I do get pushed back, like, well, what if I like my job? I'm like, I like my job too, but I know I'm like more stressed and less happy when I'm working 60 to 70 hours a week as opposed to 50 to 60. Like, because then my work is coming in the way of other things that are really important for happiness, like my social relationships, chatting with my partner, going for jogs or walks, like those things really matter for happiness. Happiness is not just about being productive. Another way that I talk about this, you know, how do you ideally want to live your life and how does your time live up to that ideal? So if you could build like your ideal 24 hour day, what does that look like? And like, what does your ideal week look like? That's going to have work in it for all of us, but is work going to be the entire thing? Like, 
Probably not for most people because what we know from the happiness literature is like exercise, social connection, helping others super matter for the way that we feel about ourselves. You take this ideal day, this ideal week, and you map it onto how you live your life. And probably what you're going to see, like most people, is you spend more time than you should be working, probably spend less time interacting, less time on hobbies. And so my book is really about trying to shift this like balance back to our lives because really we don't need more cues in our life to be productive. We're like indoctrinated with this idea. Like society tells us that our self-worth as a person is our productivity. And so my book is like, sure, you can think about this as ways to get to be more productive, but I actually think we should be focusing more on the happiness part of this as the outcome because we already get trained to focus on productivity. So we actually need to retrain ourselves to think about time and happiness as a more important focus than money or productivity or work. Since we're already told that those things are the most important thing, we don't need more help in thinking about that. We need a little bit more help thinking about time first or happiness first. That was Ashley Willens, author of the forthcoming book, Time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time and Live a Happier Life, which comes out in October from Harvard Business Review Press. Up next, we're in New York to hear from one business founder of a plant startup, which has changed its strategy in light of COVID. Kay Kim is co-founder of Rooted, a direct-to-consumer company we featured back in our print edition a few months ago, maybe last year. And Kay and his co-founder Ryan sells plants, beautiful, stylish plants, from their e-commerce site and also at a physical shop in Chinatown in New York. Back in March when the pandemic hit, the two announced the indefinite closure of that shop, like most businesses with a physical presence. But just a week ago, they announced on their Instagram that the shutdown would be permanent. They've decided to go all in on e-com, and they're shuttering their physical brick-and-mortar store completely. I thought we'd catch up with Kay to find out how they're managing that transition and what they've learned in the past few weeks. Ryan and I, we were fortunate enough to grow in places like Hawaii and California, which are constantly surrounded by verdant, thriving foliage. So when we moved to New York and experienced that concrete jungle life, we began to miss a little bit of that greenery. And so when we moved into that new apartment of ours, we decided, hey, instead of buying really expensive furniture, what if we just completely decked out our place with plants? And so we set out to do that. But we quickly discovered that that entire experience was a lot more difficult than we had expected. We were looking for affordability. We were looking for convenience. We're looking for variety, and that just was really hard to come by. We inevitably ended up at Home Depot, where, yes, we had the affordability, but the variety was not there, the convenience was not there, especially living in New York City. You have to just kind of lug all of your plants onto the L train or order a really expensive Uber, and that applies to most New Yorkers. And so we decided, hey, I think we can do this whole plant company thing a little bit better than what's already out there using our backgrounds with design advertising and tech and so we set out to do that and you know the road to your retail journey began with plant parties you called them plant parties that you threw at your apartment right what did that entail what's a plant party yeah so a plant party was literally trucking an entire freight truck up from florida filled to the brim with plants and decking out our house like an Ikea showroom, blasting music, providing drinks, and just inviting all of our friends, and really just 
having a good time, but they can also walk around our entire house. It's a two-story house and viewing plants in situ to kind of emulate what it could be like in their own space. Like this room is great for these plants because it gets this amount of light, so on and so forth. And eventually it came to a point where random people were showing up. They were like, hey, I saw that on Instagram, saw on Facebook. And that's when we were like, yes, I think there's something here. Let's take it to an actual physical storefront. And so we then moved to Greenpoint. From there, we went to Williamsburg. And our most recent one was in Chinatown. And now you recently posted on your Instagram that you're shutting down all of your retail operations entirely. Was that a direct result of COVID? That was a direct result of COVID, yes. We were kind of quick to respond on that front. We didn't want to risk our team or our customers. So we shut it down about two weeks before New York even recommended people to not go out anymore. We just didn't want to risk it. And you've gone all in now on e-commerce. So I guess what I'm interested to know is what was the proportion of your sales that came from e-com and what was the proportion of sales that came from your actual physical brick and mortar store pre-COVID? I know you also had a B2B element as well, right? Right. So pre-COVID, B2B and retail were about 40, 40%. And our e-com at the time was 20%. But we had to shut down both B2B and retail and shifted completely to e-com and online. How's e-com doing now? I mean, in the early stages of the pandemic, we were really fortunate as a business because our total sales for e-com alone superseded our B2B retail and e-com sales pre-COVID. Which is totally insane. Yeah. What accounts for that? It comes down to a lot of factors, like people getting extremely stir-crazy in their homes. You know, cabin fever is a real thing at this point. People want to invest in their space. They want to go outside, but they can't. So what better way to bring a little bit of the outdoors indoors than with plants? And it's scientifically proven to make people feel better, reduce stress, anxiety, makes for a better Zoom backdrop. Definitely saw a spike in sales, I think, because of that. I mean, if you look at the data of what people bought, they bought plants like en masse. Now, that was one of the things that people just bought as soon as lockdown happened. Yeah, it makes sense. I guess I'm interested to know, you know, this is a really crowded market, the plant market. Here in London, where I'm based, there's probably five or 10 just startups I can name off, you know, the top of my head that sell plants to your door. How do you guys try to compete in that market? How do you differentiate yourselves? Because I imagine you get the plants from the same nurseries in whatever, the Netherlands or Kenya or, you know, wherever plants come from. Is it all marketing and community and branding? Yeah. So plants are the epitome of a commodity, right? A plant is a plant is a plant. Even if this brand over here is selling a pothos and we're selling a pothos, at the end of the day, we're both selling the same exact product. Yes, it can vary in terms of quality and affordability and the overall experience, but like outside of marketing and branding and community, there really isn't that much of a difference. So we try to leverage our tone of voice our mission and sustainability practices and education as kind of our main marketing drivers, I guess, and like what really differentiates us as a company. And us as founders, you know, we're not third generation farmers who grew up growing plants at a nursery. We are just a couple of guys who love nature and plants and just wanted to share that with as many people as possible because we know how it makes us feel. 
And so we didn't know how to take care of plants at the beginning. Like we freaked out just like everybody else when a leaf turned yellow. And because we have that background, we truly understand people's reservations and, you know, fear when it comes to their plants. And so we try to optimize their experience by taking it from their approach and their perspective. Did you think for a moment of keeping the storefront open as sort of a, a reduced size, a sort of small showroom of what the plant might look like? Because, you know, if your sales are doing so well, there wasn't a huge financial impetus, I guess, to close down the store, unless your rent is like exorbitant, which it probably is because you're in New York City. Yeah, Manhattan, Chinatown especially, we were on uh, Canal Street and Center, which is prime real estate. It really didn't make any sense for a small business like ours to even consider it at this point, simply because we don't know what the state of retail is going to look like even a year out from now. And we just can't take that risk. You guys are one of the lucky ones, though, in that you are still around. You haven't shut down. Sales are still really, really strong. That being said, but you know what keeps you up at night? What are you worried about? I mean, what's not to worry about as a small business in the middle of a global pandemic? But I would say as a small business, the reason why we've survived up until now is because of how quickly we've been to adapt, to try out new ideas, to fail, not being afraid of failing. One of the things that keeps me up at night is what if one of those failures is too big of a failure and we can't really recover? Like it takes us 10 steps back and now we're sitting at a place where it looks like we have to shut down because of this one move. But you don't want that very thought to stop you from wanting to keep failing and testing out new ideas because that at the end of the day is what's kept us alive until now. I guess is the ultimate nature of entrepreneurship, what you just described basically. Yeah, you've got to learn to adapt. You've got to differentiate yourselves. You've got to try new things and really engage with your customers and see what sticks. And the things that do stick, you need to reiterate and improve and start that process all over again. And that's it for this week. Make sure to check out our brand new workshop podcast, which we launched last Wednesday. Each episode digs into the nitty gritty of one business topic, from finance to marketing to HR. We really get deep into the heart of what it means and hopefully how you can apply it to your own business. You can head to the show notes of this show to find a link or to search for Courier Workshop. And make sure to also check out our Fresh Fund, a grant scheme that we launched at Courier for black business founders in the US or the UK. That's basically some extra money to supercharge a company or start a new one. You can find out more details on the website, couriermedia.co. Any questions, comments, or feedback, just shoot me an email at daniel at couriermedia.co as well. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. The Courier Weekly is back again next week. 